Hi, this is Damon Pistolka, host of the Faces of Business podcast, where we talk to interesting people about life and business. We cover their backgrounds, obstacles they've encountered, and find out what drives them. Along the way, our guests share nuggets you can use to drive your success. Reach me directly, D-A-M-O-N at ExitYourWay.us, or check out our website, ExitYourWay.us, for more information. I hope you enjoy our show. All right, everyone. Welcome once again to the Faces of Business. I'm your host. With me today, I have Francois Joffres. Francois, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So this is this is this topic today, optimizing your e-commerce supply chain, I think is is really relevant and i didn't even realize it but i've got several supply chain speakers lined up almost in a row because it's it's a it's a big deal right now nobody was talking to uh, last week i was talking to someone about it and they said no one even knew what supply chain was 18 months ago and now that's all everyone talks about because we've got shortages in ic chips and you know coffee and any and there's just so many things if you go and look at what there's actual shortages of that you don't really know about uh, and you don't and the thing that I find interesting about when you look at consumer products the stores do a really good job of hiding the fact that they've got shortages because they'll fill in the shelves with other <laughs> stuff they so do. They, yeah. yeah I used to be a merchandiser for coca-cola and I saw how they would do that oh yeah there you go there you go so it's so interesting so Francois tell us a little bit about about your hey, first of all thanks for being here if I didn't say that already and yeah, it's, it's a pleasure <laughs> it's it's awesome to get your perspective because you're helping people uh, globally source and, and manage that that whole supply chain so let's let's start back a little bit farther though and and really kind of give us some background and and tell us how you kind of got into supply chain at a time when people weren't really talking supply chain yeah it's um it's crazy first of all that people don't talk supply chain more often than uh, than today. Uh, 18 months ago, it's really because people ran out of toilet paper. And then they were like, oh, the supply chain, supply chain on the news, supply chain uh, on the memes and everything. Uh, well, uh, my introduction was uh, definitely far earlier uh, than that. It was uh, more so my background at school. So I studied uh, industrial engineering, um, which was fun. It's a lot of processes, a lot of manufacturing. Uh, like I said in our conversation before this, it's no mechanical engineer, but we do tend to problem solve like on a, on a, I would say a larger scale rather than more of a product scale. Yeah. Um, and so uh, that's really where I started learning more about everything that went into it. So for example, manufacturers, how they select, you know, the labor force that they need uh, indirect versus la uh, direct uh, labor costs when it comes mm -hmm. to, uh, inventory management, inventory carrying cost and control and, um, you know, looking at optimizations and like delivery and where they're going to manage their next warehouses, where they're going to store their inventory. Um, so all of this I was actually exposed to in school, uh, not on a very, very deep scale. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I, I finally got the opportunity at one point to uh, intern here at Novi Land, And it was 
really just a concept to, to optimize and really revolutionize the yeah. way supply chain management's handled. Um, and this was back in 2016. Um, and I was the third person with the company at the time, third or fourth person wow. with the company. Um, and the way that they described it to me, as soon as I got done with the interview, I went on, uh, went online and I Googled every single thing that they could have possibly talked to me about on the interview. And I was like, they're absolutely right. There, there is no simple way of doing this business. And, and when I say that, I mean the more traditional sense of a, a business owner going to a manufacturer, going to a factory owner and saying, hey, this is my product and this is my investment and my strategy behind it. Uh, can we go ahead and uh, get, get this product produced? And these are my forecasts, for example. Um, and I'm sorry, can you hear that? Jack in mm. the background? No, 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 no. <laughs> just, just faintly. It's not bad at all. So we're okay, good. okay, good. Um, and so yeah, they uh, essentially it's merging uh, a technology as well as this human element of you know connecting those factories with these business owners to uh, optimize that process. Uh, it, it fascinated me. It yeah. seemed like a huge problem and a huge gap that no one was really looking to solve. We have things like Alibaba, an amazing yeah. marketplace, I would say, where anyone can go on and list, though. That's that's yeah. one of the problems. It's kind of like Craigslist today here in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very similar there. Um, and so uh, there was no real personal touch to it. So we said, hey, why don't we uh, look at this from a different angle of, you know, um, there's a traditional sourcing agent where you have one representative tries to oversee a lot of the, you know, the, the, the business doings with the factory. They look at, you know, the logistics aspect, but they don't have to get into every single piece of the nitty gritty. Yeah. They don't have time to look at optimizing the packaging size, for example, to fit more into a container, uh, to seeing how many fit onto a pallet so you can optimize a pallet um, and how you're going to distribute that. Um, it's actually a very big job. And that's a ton um, of work. I've had, I've had to do that project doing, doing in the last, 10, 15 years, I've done some of the international sourcing projects and just getting just what you said, the container size, the carton size, how many go into a carton of an item and then how many go on a pallet and how that fits into a container is huge, huge, especially if you're going to in the life cycle of the project. I was, it was a fairly big project I was working on. And I think it was a difference between like thousands of containers in an, on an annual basis. It was nuts how many containers it really turned out to be. So that, yeah, that's, that's a big deal. Just optimizing the size of the, the, just maximizing your, your density in the containers. Yeah. Yeah. And not only that, but also being able to effectively communicate with those factories, right? Where traditionally they might have to visit overseas. We saw just in these past two years that that's almost impossible now. Yeah. So now we are resorting to more virtual and Zoom meetings, which is great. Um, but it does still remove that element of uh, that that personal touch, right? Being yeah. able to actually see them face to face. What are they saying? Are they saying when they say no to me? How are they saying it? <laughs> or, yeah. or I guess more importantly, when they say yes to me, how are they saying? It? Are they saying yes? I can do that change, or are they saying? Yeah, I could do that for you. And it's, yeah, it's a whole different concept yeah. um, with the latter being, Hey, there's probably going to be some quality control risks. They, uh, it might be a longer time to develop the product itself. Um, they may be subcontracting some parts of those out. Um, 
but uh, it, uh, overall it's it's just a very complex process it's something that we're not going to be able to solve uh immediately i don't think anyone is mm -hmm. um if they are they're an absolute genius einstein out there because this is a, a global issue um, yeah but also the, the the problem with it is uh is that when things remain the status quo innovation doesn't tend to be there yeah right? so when we've seen the supply chain stay exactly the same for the past few decades um, it's hard for someone to come in this space and say, hey, there's something wrong with this because everyone says, no, I've been doing this the same <laughs> yeah, and everything's been working out for me. Well, and I think, too, that, that awareness is a big thing because, you know, like you said, there's some traditional brokerage type models where, where people do it, but they really don't talk about the product or have enough of a, a network of manufacturers uh, globally that can actually look at two or three places to source the product. They There's all the things that I think that you've talked about that are, are really key into that, um, that you're doing differently, that, that does make things a lot different than the traditional, you know, I either know a factory or that knows a factory or I have a broker that's helping me do this. I mean, I did I did it years ago back in the early 2000s where source products in China, just like you said, Alibaba, weeded down between a few factories that can do it and go visit them. And and, you know, that process was painstakingly slow and hard uh, compared to what you're talking about, where I could bring my, you know, product specifications or component specifications to you, whatever it may be. And, and you can do a lot of that with existing relationships. And that also means that we can't do every single project, Yep. right? We don't have every factory under our belt yep. and we recognize that we're very upfront about it within just a few days. Hey, we don't have a factory for you. These might be some great resources. Yeah. There's trade associations, for example, in China that a lot of people don't know about. They hear trade and they immediately think trade agent. Well, there's an association, for example, for uh, light goods or for electronics or for uh, certain types of components and hardware. Um, and some of the top factories tend to be a part of these associations and they go to conferences and they, uh, they network, right? So, uh, it, yeah. it's knowing what's actually happening overseas. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I mean, don't get me wrong. A lot of us importers are very aware of that. They also go to these, yeah. uh, you know, these shows and they network too, yeah. um, by any means necessary, because that is the best way to actually handle an effective supply chain. It's not the most mm -hmm. efficient. By any means, yeah. <laughs> Traveling, yeah. you know, spending a day just in flight is not the most efficient. Yeah, uh, but it'll it'll do wonders to your overall supply chain. Yeah, that's for sure. So uh, let's let's talk a little bit about what the last couple of years. <laughs> and it's funny now because we're actually getting nearly it's what is it? We're we're a year and a half full into it. Just say February until now, yeah. or March until now. We're almost into September. It seems like that time's flown by, but kind of kind of give us a uh what really happened in into the importing supply chain last year. I mean, was there a time that that it was like the containers are coming in and they just stopped for a while and then they started up again kind of normally or what happened last year that, cause we've, we've been, like I said, we've been insulated from some of this. We've seen a lot of it, but what happened just from like the physical flow of goods last year? 
I think, uh, well, for starters, Chinese New Year, right? Chinese New Year yeah. happens every year around January, February. Yeah. Uh, tends to halt most of the global supply chain even uh, because. Yep, it does. Yeah. And those two weeks that they're closed and there's two weeks post uh, Chinese New yep. Year, then there's typically two to four weeks before that when everyone's leaving. Yep. Um, and factory, you know, uh, employee turnover with it and yeah. then they have to retrain workers. There, there's just a lot of knock on effects by itself for Chinese New Year. And now that itself was amplified by COVID. It, it, I didn't realize that that could have coordinated almost horribly because it was getting yeah, it over did. about the time that COVID was starting. And there's no, there's virtually no production during that time. So right. you either get your products on the water before that or to the dock before that, uh, or you don't get them until, you know, in April, May, because you yeah, have to think of transit time. Too. Yeah. Yeah. So that they couldn't have hit it at a worse time. So we have the <laughs> Chinese new year hits and then COVID hits. And then COVID hits. I, I would say the past two years has been the worst series of unfortunate events. Um, but uh, to track back to the beginning, Chinese New Year hits, COVID hits, and we saw uh, a slowdown in businesses that were actually placing orders, but not okay. a slowdown in businesses that were requesting um, requesting quotes. So RFQs, right? Submitting those RFQs to us, um, which I found interesting because you know the logic behind it didn't make much sense you're asking someone to quote you when all of their component suppliers all of their upstream supply chain is also shut down so it was difficult all around to get quotes um and a lot of who we were talking to were also using alibaba yeah um, but a little bit less experience to where they might be working with a trade agent trade agents uh, they have their merit to them, but they don't always have uh, their goal is sales. It's not mm -hmm. always to build a relationship or yeah. to be the most honest. Um, and so we saw that, uh, that that little bit of a slowdown. But um, really, when China kept everything closed, it was hard to manufacture anything. Uh, yeah. And when these components are going global, uh, it's not just to your final goods. It could be your final goods being made in India and they're sourcing, let's say, zippers from China. Yeah. Right? And if they can't get those zippers and they can't finish the hoodie that you're making or whatever the case may be. Um, and so we just saw that trickle effect start. And, and a few months later, um, May, June, like June, July, we really started to pick, see it pick back up in regards to production. Uh, well, the issue with it is we saw a big boom in e-commerce specifically. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so a lot of retailers might've started to be uh, thinking, well, you know, crap, we have to actually get these products listed online and, um, you know, Sears, Macy's, all these different big box stores also uh, are struggling with, let's say, warehousing because they traditionally will store things more in their retail stores. They might have some distribution centers um, and then they handle cross docking from there. Um, would this put a strain on warehouses? Because everyone was looking uh, for somewhere to receive their product mm. and Amazon was having its issues too. Yep. Right. So, uh, and, and that's more so going very downstream. We skipped a whole step of logistics. Uh, and now we're talking PPE is at a full swing, right? Yeah. Everyone is trying to get product uh, out of China into the U S or just anywhere in the world, mm -hmm. uh, particularly face masks. And uh, these products are, uh, small but they're single use and they take up a lot of volume in a container um well also they halted the airline flights right the i believe it was the 747s and, and the, the boeings uh because uh, 
Yeah. Regular air travel was halted by itself. So they stopped bringing, I think, 40% of all packages that they typically bring from China to the U.S. or something along those lines. There's that well, many packages that come in commercial airline flights across commercial. Air, yeah. Oh, yeah. They go wow. in the underbellies of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. To the point to where now uh, a lot of companies are chartering their own planes. And instead of having people fly on them, they're just loading boxes on them. And we saw okay. this with PPE too. Yeah. Um, actually, it was, it was who has the product first. So this is yeah. really where we started to see the, the first bit of strain aside from the toilet paper, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's PPE. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so with all of that space being taken up specifically for PPE, because a lot of people were trying to make a buck. Yeah. Also, a lot of people, uh, let's say hospitals and group purchasing organizations, they were struggling them. to get it too. Yeah. Yeah. So it was um, to the point to where uh, my team was sending me pictures of factories that were produced. These were some of them were pop up factories. They were factories that produced something else. And then they started producing PPE out of nowhere because the opportunity was there. Mm -hmm. Well, there were lines a mile long, over a mile long of people with cash in hand to go to the factories and actually buy masks so they can resell them. Hmm. And at the same time, group purchasing organizations, uh, we were working with some uh, state governments also, uh, they were looking to buy the same exact thing. Yeah. And so you have, let's say, the state of West Virginia competing against New Jersey, but they're still trying to perform business as usual. They're trying to send a letter of intent for example, oh, or, yeah. uh, wire some money through an escrow. Well, factories are like, why would I do that when I have an entire mile of people willing to pay the exact same price as you, but they have cash in hand. Cash in hand, going <laughs> to hand it over, they're ready to go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. they're ready to go. Um, and so uh, that caused a lot of strain on logistics. And then we saw a lot of uh, retail goods, of course, start to pick back up. We saw a huge boom in Amazon, for example, quarter of a quarter. Um, and so factories were really struggling with just keeping up with the demand in general. Uh, and, and on top of that, logistics was already backed up. A lot of people were storing PPE in containers, for example. Uh, everything was leaving China. The issue was nothing was going back. Oh, So you had a ton of containers. Uh, and and you know, traditionally, they do export more than they import, I believe, from the U.S., um, but so they have a ton of containers that are just leaving. No one can find these containers now. So now you start to see these costs go up from like 3,000 to 3,500 to 4,000. I remember when it hit 5,000 at a meeting with my boss and I was like, oh shit, what are we going to do? Like it's, it's already getting up there. It's, you know, almost two times what it was before the lead times were getting longer. And then it got to 10,000 and then 12,000, 15,000, 17,000. Now we're seeing like $19,000 for container that traditionally costed about three to $4,000. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm talking like a Ningbo to, uh, to, to long beach port. And so, now oh, so that's not even, that's not even getting on the train and bringing it across the United States or you know, no. the middle of the country or anything. No, that's just port to port. And we're seeing oh, this. Oh, my races. goodness. Um, well, this is really a time where carriers don't care to make more space available because they're making so much money on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, I just read, actually, the U.S. Agriculture uh, Institute or something along those lines is, I think, filing a lawsuit because they are not getting the containers that they were promised. And usually a container going back to China is about 600 to to $1,000. Well, 
uh, let's say Costco or anyone that's leasing out these containers goes, why would I give it to you for $600? You're going to keep it for three weeks because we have to take it to you. You have to load it. We have to transport it, get it put onto the boat, taken back, unloaded. Why would I waste three weeks when I can get it back to China within two weeks and I can flip that same container for another $15,000. So it's yeah. all about economics, right? And it's, it's it, these knock on effects just keep going and going and going. Sourcing is backed up because manufacturers are getting larger orders. Logistics is backed up because there's a global container shortage. We had issues like the Suez canal, which, uh, yeah. you know, amplified a lot that, of these it, issues. It's amazing. Now that you kind of go through this chronologically, how bad that screwed things up first the chinese new year then the suez canal and we already had covid going which which made it very challenging <laughs> so we were we were hosed yeah and, and that's why i'm saying you know this is uh very much something that uh, it's you can't do business as, as usual uh this series of yeah. unfortunate events i think bursted a bubble of perfection in supply chain this concept that you know Toyota brought to market of lean manufacturing and lean processes uh, just can't hold up as easily in today's environment as it did two years ago. That that's the one thing I think that if anybody has has realized is that this this you know decades of leaning out supply chains and going okay we got inventory here we got inventory there and we don't have to do it 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 doesn't hold up when you've got supply chain disruptions. Right. It just doesn't. Uh, and, you know, and, and I think that from the people that I've been talking to, we're seeing a lot more um, dual sourcing on critical items uh, because it just makes sense even and, and to continue buying from both sources to make sure they're relevant and still able to produce and some of the stuff they got to do. Um, but that's a great point that the 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 normal lean supply chain uh, it, it just really doesn't survive well in this situation. Well, the concept of lean is is interesting, right? Uh, you you can only really make something lean when it's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or what? Once you're, you know, let's say you're you're applying some six sigma to it, or you're just trying to optimize. You can't optimize something that's not standardized. Yeah. Already. Right. Yeah. And and today in today's environment, nothing is standardized. Um, the worst is always ahead. That's one thing I I tend to always say uh, when it comes to supply chain. It's uh, there are great moments and they could be long, great moments. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, the worst is always going to be ahead. The worst thing that happened to you this year is only the worst thing that happened to you this year. It's not the worst thing that happened to you next year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so first of all, have the container prices started to come back down? Are we still not living? Not yet. So we're still paying that much. So, oh, wow. So that had to, then, then when you're looking the cost inflation on all the goods that you can get just because of container price. Cause, cause you know, when you look at if I was paying three or $4,000 to get that container, now I'm paying 15,000, just say it's five X times. But if the, if I've got a hundred K worth of product inside of there that I'm trying to sell, that just means that I had to raise that the price of that by 10% just to cover the cost of, of, of shipping increase of that container, just that first leg. You would think, you would think it's that easy. A lot of brands that we talk to and that we work with are terrified, absolutely mortified of raising any sort of price. Yeah, yeah. It's, it always comes back to, well, let's get better pricing from the factory. Well, the factories are already running on, let's say yeah. 16, 17% margin. 
and uh, you know the, the the cost of the U.S. dollar versus the the renminbi isn't the best right now. So let's try to find a different solution. How about we um, maybe take off your packaging and do master cartons, and then you package them in the U.S. Is that cheaper? Uh, these are conversations a lot of times that we have that business owners don't want to hear. They 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 want to close their ears and say, "No, I just want to do it my way." Well. Just like, you know, the group purchasing organizations and the state governments with PPE, yep. it's not doing business as usual. It's it's very much looking at this uh, as a two way road. Right. You mm -hmm. have to uh, you have to take as much as you give. Um, and a lot of times that's just done through conversations. Uh, and yeah. and you, we've had some really innovative conversations. Hey, how can we um, flat pack some of this furniture instead of having any of it assembled? Right. Uh, for example, when cabinetry uh, actually uh, encountered anti-dumping and countervailing duty about a year and a half ago to 200 and I think it was 230 or 260 percent for all imports coming from China. Well, some of our larger customers said, well, what are we going to do? We have to go somewhere else. Well, what we know with boots on the ground is that some of our factories have already started to look into real estate in Vietnam. And we can help, you know, bring those two solutions together. Someone has a problem. These factories with the real estate infrastructure in Vietnam already have a solution. Mm -hmm. uh, well, now it's also working through compliance issues, of course, and uh, looking at costs and supply chain in Vietnam and understanding the infrastructure that they have built. Uh, right. Like uh, one interesting thing that I found out um, during the whole cabinetry issue and cabinetry is still an issue today, but that's a that could be a whole different podcast. Um but in, in Vietnam, for example, the factory actually had to hire twice the labor force uh, than they did for standard uh, uh, production runs in China, because every two weeks they were losing workers and they didn't realize why. Well, I guess in this uh, the city in Vietnam that they're in, traditionally the workers will work for those two weeks until they have enough money to give their families to pay off, let's say, uh, food and rent. And the men that will go to work will actually go get... Uh, but they, they go to have a good time for a little time and until they, they need more money. So they had to constantly start to rotate out these workers. Um, but it's something that they weren't used to. So yeah. now we have to have those conversations with, you know, the importers in the U S explain to them, this is what's happening. This is why your orders are delayed. Um, but that that's all they are. They are, they're conversations and, uh, that's all you should be asking for of your suppliers. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, contracts are great. Um, and, you know, putting in, let's say, stipulations of this is how long it should take. And these are some potential penalties that could happen um, if you're late or whatever the case may be. It's great to have in a contract, but uh, the supplier can fire you just as fast as you could fire them. Yeah. Uh, so it's just it, it's important to know that. And, and, you know, to your point of diversification, very important. I think that's one thing that has helped a lot of companies sustain uh, just steady inventory. So if mm -hmm. you could outsource it to somewhere else, not the same country that you're already producing in, yeah. but outsourcing it somewhere else, even if it costs you a little bit more, uh, see that as a cost of risk mitigation, right? I mean, how much do you, do you care about having inventory? Uh, I, I hope the answer is that that's your utmost importance, yeah. right? Without inventory, you have no marketing, you have no PPC, you have no sales, so you have no revenue. Mm -hmm. uh, so that small cost can, can definitely go a long way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's funny because we're talking about this in 2021 and three or four years ago now when the, when the initial tariffs came in from imported products. I mean, we, we did a bunch of work with a client to 
to dual source different countries, like you said, to be able to continue to move product, um, the same product that into into their facilities to be able to ship to to uh, consumers. And I, I have to imagine that you had the double whammy going too for anybody trying to get product in is the fact that we we're all stuck at home for a while and the e-commerce sales shot through the roof. So the normal demand was out the window and now you have customers that want twice as much as they originally projected with all the problems that we just talked about. Yeah. And, and we're pretty big into building materials too. Um, and so oh. we, you know, we work with a lot of wholesalers, particularly for building materials and it's that industry itself shot up. Uh, I mean, when yeah. uh, construction slowed down for a short bit, but as soon as everyone was able to get back to work, it just continued rising. And that's why, you know, the cost of, let's say, building a home, I think went up 50 or 60% at one point, yeah. starting yeah. to normalize again. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a struggle, definitely. But that's where we decided to get innovative, too. Uh, it's, you know, we opened up a 20,000 square, 28,000 square foot warehouse. Um 18, 19 months ago, it was really, really like right before COVID. Uh, and it was more of a side project. Uh, well, by the end of this year, we're projecting over a million square feet in just fulfillment space. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. So, so it's, it's an exciting time. And that's where I say, you know, innovation is really driven uh, through, you know, these issues. When we see that there's problems and people start to realize, yeah, I can't do business as usual. You have to find solutions. Um, yeah, that's, you know, that's where you find service providers and you find, uh, you know, individuals like yourself that can uh, just help them think, think of that next thing through. How can we solve this problem? Not just complain about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so something I heard the other day, and maybe, maybe you guys are, are starting to help people with this is there's a lot of, um, there was talk anyway, and I only read a couple articles about it where, people that are actually doing a lot of FBA sales on Amazon are finding it necessary to have more offsite inventory locations just to make sure they're replenishing the, the FBA locations, you know, in a timely manner. Cause I have people that don't understand FBAs, you charge for the space you use and you can only put so much in there at a given time. So it's, it's not quite as bad as shipping products just in time to an automotive plant, but it's, you, you can't load them up and let them, run on it for two months or anything like that uh, or months and months and months. I said, I don't know what the exact terms are now because it changes. It changes with their space and it changes with the popularity of your product, the size and type of product, all kinds of things. So do you see, is that part of what you guys got into is actually being that kind of stopping point so they could distribute to the FBA locations from where you're at? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, and that's an interesting concept itself too, because uh, again, two years ago, no one thought about IPI or inventory performance index. And this is basically a score that Amazon gives you on um, your conversion rate, on how quickly you sell out of your inventory, are your daily sales increasing? It, it's a series of four things. And we have a, a great blog on it um, that my co-host Lisa actually wrote. And uh, all of a sudden, of course, Amazon is going to do what's in their best interest. They no yeah. longer want to be a warehouse. They want to be yeah. a fulfillment center. They want the least amount of, they, they want to be leaner, right? They, they want the least amount of products that they can sell out as quickly as possible. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of businesses started to realize this, like, well, you know, if they can 
change my IP score, uh, IPI score or my uh, inventory limits, which traditionally, if you were a decent seller, you didn't have any. And then it changed to you can only have 200 units in a warehouse. And now it's, I think, 1,000 units per category. So if you're in a kitchen you know, space or category, 1,000 units is nothing. Yeah. I mean, for a standard business that's selling on Amazon, 1,000 can be like less than a week's worth of inventory. Yeah. days even. Well, especially if you had multiple, you could have 1,000 SKUs. Exactly. You get one of each. <laughs> and yeah. so now they, 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 of course, let you open up different storefronts. Yeah. It, it's a lot yeah. more to manage. Um, but yeah, no, th this importance of keeping inventory offsite uh, has definitely played a role uh, in, in not only the supply chain, but the pricing, right? Yeah. You know, you now have to consider uh, getting those products to a 3PL, a reliable 3PL uh, that, that can uh, receive your inventory, palletize it as needed, uh, prepare it for Amazon FBA, yep. bill for Amazon FBM if you need it also. Um, if you have multi-channels, let's say Shopify or Walmart or anywhere else, they should be able to fulfill those as well. Well, how far is that from an Amazon facility? How much is it going to cost to get it to the Amazon facility? Yeah. How long is it going to take to check into the Amazon facility? There's all these new steps that business owners have to think about now. Um, it's something that we like to just take off their plate and say, hey, we'll tell you exactly when it arrives, when it's going to be shipped, when it you know arrives at Amazon, and from there, Amazon checks it in. Um when you make but, a you make a great point though, just about checking into an Amazon FBA facility. I remember there were times you wait ten days for it to get checked in, and I imagine if they're busy, seen a you're, lot of lost, a lot yeah, of lost inventory. Yeah, just lost too. Yeah, lost inventory, and you have to go back and prove that you actually shipped it there, and then they can <laughs> find it. Yeah. Well, what what they also didn't say, uh, and, and they didn't release it to anyone. We found out from one of the drivers that left our facility, Amazon at one point. Uh, stopped signing proof of deliveries, the PODs that usually they would sign at the warehouse itself because of mm -hmm. COVID, you know, um, social mm -hmm. distancing. Mm -hmm. And so they said that they were going to do it electronically, but a lot of them didn't. They would just say, hey, this is the, uh, the proof of you, um, the, the proof that you had a scheduled appointment, but since they didn't sign it, you have no proof of delivery. So even if you make a claim to Amazon, they would say, well, send me your proof of delivery. Well, I don't have one. They never signed one because they said they weren't. Doing wow. that. So now an Amazon representative is confused about the Amazon policies. This company is, is way too big. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. They, they can't keep up. Um, so, yeah, I mean. Interesting like stuff, though. I mean, it's just it's fascinating when you look in the supply chain and the little uh, intricacies and the challenges, because like you said, this is just one problem or a series of problems that kind of hit us, hit us all at once. But as you, as we kind of see ourselves navigating the way through this, what are some of the cool things that you're seeing emerge from things that are happening, what people are doing that, that really look like it's, it's exciting to be in the supply chain world and what's, what's happening. That's that you like to talk about. Innovation and maturity. Uh, are the two biggest things that I've definitely seen. We're not the only supply chain, you know, company mm -hmm. out there. We're not the only sourcing company out there by any means. Uh, but we have started to see more competition, which we welcome, uh, mm -hmm. very much welcome. It's something that that's the reason that we got into the space for to, to for it to change because there are problems that a lot of people haven't seen. Yeah. Um, 
a maturity in the sense that, you know, we're starting to see a lot of businesses boom out of nowhere and they're starting to find new solutions. So tools that are being built for forecasting, for example, or dual modeling and logistics is starting to be used more often by larger companies. If they can afford it, if they have the right partnerships in line. Um, I find that very exciting more so because I think it's going to have a trickle effect into just general infrastructure when it comes to, let's say, trucking. And mm -hmm. automation and trucking. How important is that? Because nowadays we can't get trucks. Yeah. But what if we try to automate some of that? What's that going to make more efficient? It's going to make the deliveries more efficient, might make the pickups more efficient, uh, less truck waiting times at docks. Well, now that we have this, we have to learn how to optimize, let's say, ERPs and warehouse management solutions also or systems. Uh, well, once those are optimized and they're able to be integrated with more marketplaces and platforms, then we automate that next step, all done through technology, right? Obviously, yeah. there's, there's a lot of people behind it. Well, then also, how can we make warehouses safer? Uh, let's reduce the number of accidents in warehouses. Well, we can incorporate maybe some robotics or some automation in that. We can change the methods of picking and packing. Uh, the innovation... It seems like a problem that's never going to be solved. Is yeah. the way I look at it. It's what industrial engineering most got me uh, excited, I guess, about just college in general. Yeah. Um, and it's something that I get to do every single day. So it's it's something where I love it. I, I think you know, uh, if any business isn't focusing on supply chain, um, I hate to say it, but they may fail in the near future because they're not going to be able to keep up with general supply chain. They're not going to be able to keep up with innovation. Yeah, it'd be really hard to play catch up there. Yeah, um, so it's it's fun stuff. It's it's never it's never a boring day. I guess is a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So when so I, I'm coming back around again. There's some good things are happening. You're you're seeing there's there's these things that are changing. So do you think that? Um, I lost my train of thought a little bit, which is, <laughs> you know, usual. But do you th do you think that we are going to see some permanent changes, or do you think that as soon as we turn out of this, right, and just say we're we're sitting here a year from now, and whatever they figured out how to how to keep us safe so we don't have to close things down like this anymore, and or on and off, whatever we don't know, say safe, whatever you want to call it. Um, do you think that people are just going to swing right back into that? Or do you really think this is going to cause some long-term change? I hope that this, I hope that we find a light at the end of this tunnel in innovation. Again, yeah. I really hope that we stop doing business as usual. Um, I hope this changes everyone's mindset and changes the fact that uh, lean is great, but it's not the only way. It's not the only thing to focus on. Um, and I think that's what's really going to drive innovation. I think now people have started to see, uh, particularly business owners, but they've started to see even consumers, no toilet paper again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they've started to see that this is an important aspect of everyday life yeah. um, and that there should be a lot invested into this, whether it's conversations, whether it's uh, money, whether it's, uh, you know, inspiring other great thought leaders to just come up with the next big thing. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm very excited to see the changes that this has on supply chain. Unfortunately, I think there are going to be a lot of business owners that do go back to doing business as usual. Perfectly fine. It's going to happen. 
Yeah. Right? Uh, but I also think this is going to spark uh, that next great thought in someone yeah. to say, hey, that's a problem I think I could solve. That that would be cool if it does. That's for sure. And I'm sure there are going to be pieces of that, no doubt. I mean, especially when you think about just applying some sort of technology to better know where products are or whatever it is, or like you're talking about automation of, of some of the trucking things. I mean, there's just, there's just so many opportunities that, that could help us out at different places in the supply chain. And, and I read an article recently about, uh, it was talking about supply chain, but it was, it was mentioning how dependent we've, we become on a global supply chain. And they were talking about, sit down at your dinner table and just look at the food that's on your plate. And they, th and they, they were, they were breaking it down and it was like, this product came from this part of the world. This product came from this part of the world. This product came from this part of the world. And, you know, and it's all not coming from you. And then it went to the factory, you know, it was grown here, went to the factory and was processed, went to your next, that might've moved countries in that. So we've integrated these supply chains, these, these, complex supply chains to to make sure that we can go to the grocery store any day of the week and buy uh you know whatever it is broccoli or whatever or we want whatever we want really <laughs> at the stores right or the yeah and the the challenge is not simply one or the other or making it a local supply chain because you can't in some of this and and really it, it's just planning for these disruptions and, and better insulating them from these challenges, I think, is about the only thing you're going to be able to, to do long term with some of these innovations. It's definitely not a single answer uh, problem. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, just like uh, we call it a chain <laughs> for a reason, right? Every yeah. link has to work perfectly for the next link to work perfectly also. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, I mean, there's not a single problem. That's why I think there's going to be so much innovation uh, yeah. across the board. And I think the smallest things that we never realized uh, are going to be something that we innovate on. Uh, that's what I'm most excited about. It's just new problems every single day. Yeah, yeah, you're right, though. It could be the, the smallest, simplest things making a huge difference. Yeah, hopefully we get more visionaries out there. Yeah, yeah, good <laughs> stuff. Well, Francois, it's been awesome talking to you today. And this is this supply chain and understanding us uh, a global supply chain. If someone wants to reach out to you and talk to the talk to you about optimizing your e-commerce supply chain or with general supply chain questions, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. So if you look up my name, Francois Jaffris, uh, spelled Francois, F-R-A-N-C-O-I-S. <laughs> People see me and they think Francisco. Now I'm Francois. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, LinkedIn. Another way is just Noviland, N-O-V-I-L-A-N-D.com. Uh, Very go good. Contact form there and I'll be sure to see it. All right. Awesome. Well, Francois, it's been great talking to you today about optimizing your e-commerce supply chain, the e-commerce and supply chain challenges in general over the last 18 months and your, your thoughts towards future innovations in supply chain. So thanks for being here. Thank you, Damon. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Appreciate you. Love the input that we get about new guests and other things. We will be back here again on Thursday talking with more interesting people in business. Thanks a lot.